Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Uh, it is good to be back with you, uh, Westside. Uh, you know the drill by now. If you got your Bibles with you, turn to Ephesians. That's where we are. That's where we're hanging out. That's where we are, where we are uh, continuing uh, this morning. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, all the way into chapter 2, finally. Uh, Paul gives his lengthiest intro in this letter. All of chapter 1 uh, is the numbering goes, is just this long intro, and we've found a, a long-winded Paul to this point. We've talked a couple times about how Paul just seemed very excited to write Ephesians, and so he, he says what could be said with one phrase, uh, with three or four or, or six, um, and so it's been a, a lot of words uh, so far to this point, all to just say, like, hi, Ephesians, how's it going? <clears throat> and now, in chapter two, we start to get into the body of the text. Uh, Chapter two gives us two sections here. There's two halves of the chapter. We're gonna look at the first half, but both halves kind of give us a before and after picture. Um, Here's what life is like before Jesus gets involved, uh, right, for each of us. And here's what it looks like after. And after not just being like a down the road thing, but after being a thing that we are experiencing right now. A before and an after. The first half of chapter 2 is a spiritual before and after. Uh, a death to life sort of uh, resurrection moment for each of us. And then the second half of chapter 2 is this cultural before and after. Folks who did not particularly like each other or know each other or want anything to do with each other now made one. Why? Because of Jesus. So there's a spiritual before and after and there's a cultural before and after. We're going to look at the spiritual one uh, today. In Ephesians 2, chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read the passage first, and then we're going to uh, come back and work our way through it. Paul says this, As for you, you were dead. That's a nice note to start the morning. Welcome. Happy, happy Sunday morning. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, not some, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But... But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Can we pray real quick? Um, Jesus, uh, what, what a perfect uh, song to sing uh, right before we dive into the word together. Uh, we want our words and um, the meditations of our hearts, the murmurings of our hearts, the stuff that is going on in our heads and in our hearts right now. Uh, we want all of that to be pleasing to you. Um, we want that to be moving the direction of God's goodness. Um, so may you come here and by your spirit, uh, just work in us. Be here in this moment and be active and help us to be sensitive to it. May the words of our mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Uh, Paul starts the body of his letter on a downer. Uh, a bit of a dire situation is what he talks about here for a moment. And um, we get to the end of this passage and we get into that wonderful, like, by grace you have been saved. And we love those verses, right? They're, those are the famous gospel-y verses that we've held on to. Each of us have held on to at some point or another in our lives. We love those verses. And yet they come in the context of the dire situation. We have to plumb the depths before we rise to the heights. P Paul understands we all came from somewhere. Jesus came to us when we were in a particular moment. A moment of um, lostness. Separation from God. Paul, Paul talks about separation from God in a handful of different ways here. He uses the words uh, transgressions and sins, not as a way to say like transgressions are this, these things over here or sins are these things over here, but to paint a full picture. Like th this is the stuff that marked our, our lives, the, the things that um, a dead person <laughs> is consumed with in some basic way. Now, I Dead in, in what sense? Well, verse 2 kind of gives us a, a picture of it. In, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now work, and the sons of disobedience, and, and those who are disobedient. This death is not necessarily a physical one, although that is a reality for each of us. It, Paul is talking about a spiritual battle, and one that we are losing, and one that we cannot win on our own. We were all walking in a spirit that was contrary to that which um, God has called us to, that which God desires for us. The goodness, the blessing, the fullness of a life in Christ is the opposite of that which <laughs> we were stuck in on our own, right? And he says, all of us who lived, in verse 3, all, all of us, this is not a some of us situation. This is not an issue for those over there. All of us. Paul uses second person language in the first two verses, right? As for you, this is the stuff that you used to do. 
And the Ephesians are hearing these words and are like, oh gosh, Paul's kind of laying the, laying the hammer down here. This is rough. But, but then in a very pastoral way, Paul says, all of us. I, like, this, is, this is not a you problem. This is an us problem. This is an all, this is a, everybody has been here situation. All of us have lived among them at one time. Notice this, gratifying the cravings of uh, the flesh, the, the, the stuff that we just naturally want to do on our own, the things that we have a hard time saying no to uh, in our own being, uh, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, or maybe your uh, version says children of wrath. That's what, that's the, uh, that's the, what the Greek is. That's what the that's what Paul uses in the Greek. It we're children of wrath. And we'll come back in a moment to what that could potentially mean. But Paul lays out like three ideas about our separation from God here in these few verses. First of all, our separation from God is not a matter of degree. It is a matter of life and death. It's not as if what God has called us to, who God is, is in this direction, and that on our own, on our very best days, we are like kind of close to, to being right before God. And then our worst days, we're like, we're down here, maybe, maybe we could admit we're going the opposite direction. But, but on our good days, we're like, we're, we're pretty close. Paul says, no. The best way to describe how we do on our own in relation to who God is, is life and death. And you were dead in your trespasses. Or it's a spiritual battle, one that we're stuck in, constantly fighting in, constantly losing, and cannot win on our own. Situations that we cannot win. It's for, for Paul, separation from God is not a matter of degree, but it's a matter of life and death. From verse 2, we get separation from God. It includes individual responsibilities. Like we are the ones who did follow the ways of of our hearts. We, we got to admit that, right? It, there is an individual responsibility, but it's, it's bigger than just a merely personal matter. There is a wider spiritual uh, cosmic stage on which this um, life versus death battle is happening. It's not just a personal thing. It's a bigger battle in which God is deeply engaged, deeply interested for our own sake, for the sake of our own soul. And finally, separation from God. It's not just a matter of degree, but it's life and death. It includes individual responsibility, but it's not just personal. And finally, it's true of each and every one of us. We've all taken different paths, right? We all have our different paths of trying to, trying to make it on our own, trying to find meaning on our own, and yet each of our individual uh, ways of trying to go about that all lead to this same cliff, one that we cannot cross on our own, a chasm that we cannot get past on our own, a death that we cannot resuscitate ourselves from on our own. It is true of each and every one of us. Paul uses kind of jarring language here. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were children of Wrath. That's not a super comfy uh, <laughs> phrase, right? 
Might not put that over like the nursery back, back there, right? Children of wrath. Maybe some days. I mean, it depends on. <laughs> Children of wrath they were today. Uh, and we all survived. Mostly survived. Uh, I just have one. Just one. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Child of blessing. <clears throat> yeah. Children of wrath. That makes us uncomfy, right? We don't like to talk about the anger of God very much. But I think we need to uh, remember here, um, what is it throughout Scripture that gets God angry? What is it that God's wrath is directed towards? It is at every turn. It is toward evil that seems to have gone unpunished. It is towards injustice of the oppressed and the, and the down and out. It is toward the arrogant who boast against God. I, I came across this um, little quote uh, from a commentary this, this week by Lynn Kohick uh, on this, and I just wanted to read it to you. This, this helped put this in perspective to me. I don't, like to, I don't like thinking about this necessarily, but this, this was very helpful for me. She says this, uh, she, New Testament scholar Lynn Kohick says this, God's Wrath promises that in the end, wrongs done to the vulnerable will be punished. Injustices unresolved will be paid up. And the arrogant who abuse others will be silenced. That's what God's wrath is accomplishing in the world. Of course, each of us, that's Paul's language, right? All of us. All of us has done injustice. Has expressed arrogance. And has misused power. Thus, each of us can rightly be called a child of wrath. A, a, a child which has a, a, a someone who has put ourselves on the receiving end of those things which God has said, no, I'm not going to allow that. And here's the big difference, right? The, the difference between those who are dead in their transgressions and those who have been made alive to God. It's not those who have been bad and have chosen to be a little bit better. Right? It's not a matter of degree. It's not person A versus person B. It's not a human level thing. It, it, the, the difference is there are those of us who, the, the people of God are those who have said, yeah, that's me. I am dead on my own. I've tried to figure it out and I have failed. I cannot find meaning on my own. I cannot find joy on my own. I cannot find the full life blessing that we talk about time and time again all throughout scripture. My best efforts don't quite get there. The people of God are those who raise our hands and say, yes, that's true of me. I need something. I need an intervention from the God of the universe. All of us were children of wrath. But that's not the end of the story. That's just a little bit into the passage. It's good for us to sit there. It's good for us to go back. It's good for us to feel it for a moment, right? Uh, Tolkien, in an essay about writing, uh, I lo always love it when writers just write about writing and that's some of the juiciest like best stuff out there Tolkien in an essay about uh, writing a, a good story which I mean an expert I think we could say he is yeah can spin a pretty nice little tale I guess 
Uh, Tolkien coined this term eucatastrophe. The, the need to plumb to the depths before the you, before the EU, before the good can begin to happen. And Paul writes letters like this sometimes. The wrath of God will be cleaning up injustice for the rest of time. But the wrath of God is not the fundamental disposition that he has towards humanity. There, there are plenty who are of a theological disposition that want to emphasize God's anger and, and pretend that, or not pretend, they think for real, <laughs> that God's primary disposition towards the world is one of anger and that the whole like salvation thing has been Jesus kind of like appeasing the wrath of God. And there's just so little of scripture that, that makes that whole thing be an, a complete worldview, right? Instead, what is God's perspective on humanity? Now we begin to see it. First of all, Paul has gone to great lengths so far in just in chapter one to tell us it's the incomparable riches of who God is to the praise of his glory. Look at all the stuff God has already done for you. Paul's already started in that context. He's, he takes a step back and said, you were dead. And then what happened? Verse four, but, oh gosh, adversive conjunctions are just wonderful. But God, we could just, we could just spend a day just telling each other where we were and then say, but God, and just sharing stories, right? But God, and then I love this. God, because of his great love for us, uh, the English uh, glosses it over. Paul says, because of the love that he loved us with, the agape that he agaped us with, because of his great exceeding love for us, who, God, who is rich in mercy, we're adding to our lexicon of superlatives here, right? Paul, Paul likes this superlative language, and he just keeps building and building and building. Because of his great love, because he is rich in mercy, mercy not some like sentimental, like feel good emotion. Like he like feels good towards us. There is that kindness to who God is. Yes, absolutely. But mercy is a, an emotion that leads to an action on behalf of another. And God is rich in this stuff, filthy rich with it. That's why he wants it for us. Because of his great love. God, who is rich in mercy, he did three things. He made us alive. Why? Because we were dead. Yeah, that's where we started. Good baseline fact. Made us alive because we were dead. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. And then he interrupts, Paul interrupts himself here. It is by grace you have been saved. He's, he's just going along. He made us alive with Christ. He's trying to give us a list of three things and he can't even get through the whole list without, say, without saying, ah, by grace, it's grace. The whole thing is grace. He made us alive. He raised us up. Remember last week? It's the resurrection power. That's the power that's true of the life of the believer. The, the, the power that God used when raising Jesus from the dead, that's the thing that is most true about who you are. And so he says it again here. He raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that the coming age, in the coming ages, the past, it's a present, it's a future thing, right? So he did three things. He 
made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us. Those are three like great um, squares for a quilt, right? Um, I, I'm out over my skis here. I'm, I know around zero things about quilts, uh, but I, I, it's, it's squares, right? That's a way you can do it? Is it the main way? I don't know. Uh, but I'd have to think, again, this is, I, I usually do birds. I usually talk about, birds are my illustration. That's my go-to. Terry and I were just, we're talking about this right before. I, I like birds, but I, not everybody, birds aren't everybody's thing. It's fine. I'm doing something different. This is quilts, okay? Three squares, made alive, raised, seated. But I have to think, in addition to those squares, the key ing- ingredient, those squares don't do anything if they aren't like, Stitched together, right? Like there has to be a thread. There has to be a thread keeping them all together in the right spot. What's the thread here? It's Jesus. In Christ. With Christ. With Christ. In Christ. In Christ. Jesus. It's, it's union with Jesus. It's, it's union with Jesus. You want, to, you want to understand what God is up to in the world. It's uniting us to the alive one, the resurrected one, the seated at the right hand of the Father one. That which is true of Jesus is now true of the believer, is now true of us. Not because of us achieving something, but because of who God is, because of who Christ is. And God says, now the primary lens I view you through is not dead, it's the life of Christ. That is the primary lens that God now sees his people. The orienting element of God's saving work is uniting us to Jesus. If we can describe the work of God in the world without it ultimately coming back to us being united to to Christ, like we're missing it somewhere. We're, We're missing the point. In the same way that if we could walk away from this passage and say, oh, the whole point is that we were children of wrath. Like, obviously, we're missing the point there, right? If we, can, if we can think about who God is in the world without pointing ultimately to Jesus, we're missing it. We are missing it. The orienting element is uniting us to Jesus. And then we get to the engine behind it all, how it happens dead on our own, made alive by God. How? There's a word, and it is grace. Paul already introduced it. He, he like, you could tell Paul was going to end here, uh, but he got a little ahead of himself. He's like, but by grace you have been saved. And then and he's like, oh, I got to come back to that. I got to come back to that. By grace you have been saved. It's a perfect passive participle in in Greek, which just means it's a past action that has ongoing effects. You have been saved. You were saved. There was a finite point. There was a moment where that did happen in the past. You have been saved. There is ongoing realities tied to it. There's an ongoing effect. That's what God did. That's what, it, what God is doing. There was a clear death to life moment, yes, but there is also a life to live. There's life to be 
lived. It's a little bit of an extension of the, the illustration from last week, the, us getting into to Horseshoe Basin. It's exploring the park. It's the life to be lived. We'll come back to that in a moment. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. Paul has to say this a couple of times, right? It's not of yourselves and it's not of works. Why? Because we like, to, we, we like things that are of ourselves where we can point to like, oh, look, I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. This is not that. This is the work that God has done. Not a work so that we can't boast. The uniting to Jesus piece is not what we have done for ourselves. It is what God has done for us. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good stuff, to do good works, to just let the goodness of who God is fill us up to the point that we can't help but extend it to those around us. Grace is the operative term here. Grace is the engine driving God's salvation stuff in the world. Grace is the ultimate lens through which God views you and me. And so from this passage, I just want to draw a few quick conclusions about grace. It's a, it's a word we can throw around uh, a little flippantly, right? Um, but it's good, to, it's good to have a yellow light to a red light moment and just stop and think about what exactly is it? What do we mean when we say God is gracious? First, we see it in this passage, but God's grace heals the past. It gives meaning to the present and provides hope for the future. We saw a couple times in chapter one, the fact that God is interested at all three phases, right? God's been working. God is working. God's going to be working. God's grace is the only thing that heals past. It is the ultimate meaning giving Reality. We are meaning-making machines, and we are uh, in need of an oil change, right? I don't know much about cars. I shouldn't go down that one either. <laughs> and it provides hope for the future. You know the Emily Dick- Dickinson line? Hope is the thing with feathers. Birds. <laughs> there it is. Hope is the thing with feathers. Go look at a bird this week. Okay, got it in. Okay. Grace heals the past. It gives meaning to the present. Provides hope for the future. Next, God's grace is not merely a band-aid for the wound, but life for the dead. We spend so much of of our life trying to patch this up and get past that, and we end up with all this scar tissue, and God's grace is all about healing those things, but it is a much bigger picture than that. God cares about the individual wounds. But it's big enough to bring life from the dead as well. It's not just a band-aid. It is that, but it's more than that. It brings life from the dead. It alters reality. 
brings life from the dead. God's grace, next, reminds us that we cannot rescue ourselves. He has to double up on this, right? This is not from yourselves. It's not by works. Our perspective when it comes to grace ought to always be one of humility. Always be one of being reminded, I, I could not make this life thing happen on my own. Next, God's grace propels us to meaningful lives. Grace is not just a cleaning solution. It is a change agent. It's not just something for us to sit there and bask in. That would be a good thing to do. But it's dynamic. It's, it's outward moving. It cleans us. Yeah, sure. But it changes us. As well, And this is why Paul ends this passage. We are God's handiwork, God's poema, his poem, his very uh, intentionally crafted handiwork. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He, he comes back to the works language, not by works. That's not how we got in. We, grace, we don't earn grace. We live out grace. This whole salvation thing is not by good works. It is for good works. It's not that good works aren't a part of the equation. They are. It's just we got to be really careful where we put them, right? Which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love thinking about that. I want to share a quote. I think one of the most profound things that has ever been said about grace, but it's also a very helpful, like, orienting piece for, for my heart, and I hope it will be for yours as well. Uh, Dallas Willard says this in his book, The Great Omission. It says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Grace, it's not just a cleaning solution. It's not just something that we, that we sit and get comfortable in just so we can go on with our lives. No. God comes and meets us in whatever dead, dead space that we are. And he brings life. God brings life through no merit of our own. Grace is opposed to earning. And we don't like this because we like the things that we have earned. We like to, to go back and see like, yeah, I did put in the hard work for that thing. And that's a good thing. That's, that's good in our lives in general. Um, but grace is not a thing that we achieve. It's not something we can work ourselves up to. Jesus says, come with your dead selves. Come with the stuff you can't figure out. That's where I thrive. That's, that's my stuff. That's what I want to heal. That's what I want to revive. Grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. Grace propels us into lives of faithfulness, of obedience, discipleship, the way Paul talks about it here is good work, good works, good stuff. God is undoing all of the dead stuff that we have given 
our lives to and propelling us into a life. So I, just, I want us to think about two questions as we, as we wrap up here today. Just for, um, just like personal assessment, personal f- reflection, although it would be a good thing to talk about with a neighbor, with those around you. First, let's, let's start here. Where has a posture of earning crept into my life of faith? At our, uh, it's a very human thing, right, to uh, dip back into the earning perspective. And by this, I don't mean, um, th- there are plenty of instances, there are good habits that we ought to just go ahead and do, whether we feel like we're, we want to do them or not. That's part of the spiritual disciplines that we should be engaging each, each time. I, I'm not saying we, we should just stop if we don't f- feel like it, but let's pay real close attention to our hearts and minds as we come to church, as we engage with one another. Am I trying to, am I striving at all times just to try to be a little more pleasing to God? Know this, brother and sister, you cannot be any more pleasing to God than you already are right now. God's posture towards you is the, the love that he loves you with, the goodness of his love, the riches of his mercy, the grace that you could not earn. That is God's fundamental disposition towards you. So take a breath. Take a deep breath and sit in that. Enjoy it. Bask in a life of not having to earn and then finally, how is God's grace freeing me towards a life of others-oriented goodness? That's how I want to talk about good works. Others-oriented goodness. There's stuff, right? There's stuff that we are called to be doing with our lives. And we can get so consumed with um, so many little things that we miss the others-oriented goodness that God just wants to fill our lives with. Remember, we talked about it in the very first week. God calls, God chooses people in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world and to your immediate sphere. What's the goodness in your immediate sphere that you want to see happening? How is God propelling you towards that? And remember every instant, you engaging in that thing is not what is making you pleasing to God. That is not the way it goes. Let God's grace seep into your life and propel you outward. God's grace is a freeing mechanism in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, um, we're dead on our own but you desire life for us and you give life. Um, We are distracted with our own desires on our own, Um, but you awaken us to a a full life of of holy desire. Um, We like to think of ourselves as pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and you say, my grace is sufficient for you. We become self-occupied and you call us to an outward life of good deeds. 
so help us. Help us to <laughs> remember <laughs> these things. Help us to come to you each morning with, with a, a posture of humility, with open hands saying, God, what, it is it, what is it that you want me to walk into today? I know that you love me. I know that your fundamental posture towards me is nothing but grace and pleasure and acceptance. And from that place, may you show me where's the stuff that I should be involved in. Guide us, Lord. Thank you that you do this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.